when I decided to start my business in 2016, I registered it that night. And, and then the next day walked down to the local mall and got hats with the logo put on it, like at the store called Lids, walked my ass into school and then sold those hats to my classmates. I was like, I'm in business, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur. I like started that day. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. Rob, what's going on, brother? Hey, guys, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Let's jump into some of the business stuff, dude, because you're, you're working on a lot of really cool things right now, and I know we're going to run out of time before we run out of stuff here. So um, I want to just jump right into it. The first question I had, I couldn't really find when I was trying to do a lot of research on Endure and, and some of the work that you're doing with Custom Labs, but is this is this your first business that you've ever started? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like I think what I call my past life, as you kind of alluded to earlier, I was a professional cyclist, like five times in the Canadian national team, did that for 10 years. And, you know, in hindsight, that whole journey was quite entrepreneurial. Like I negotiated all my own contracts and did my own travel finances, et cetera. So like learned a lot of skills, not knowing that I was like learning business skills throughout like a 10 year athletic career. And then after retiring, I was like, what do I do with my life? You know, like I, I thought that was going to be it. I thought it was going to be like Michael Jordan and just like roll out in the sunset but there's not a lot of money in the sport it's a young guy's sport too I was like early 20s you know when I walked away from it so like you have guys that are like 14 15 that are coming up that like are crushing so I was like maybe I can start a business and like make business my new sport and so I just kind of like built a brand in the athletic space and approached it that way and yeah here we are but yeah this is the first go you notice that with a lot with a lot of people you'll talk to in the business world where like they're super competitive and they came from some kind of sports background, whatever. That's been a big theme, especially like talking to people on this show. What I haven't noticed at all that like you were kind of like one of the more first people to actually do something like this is have your first business that you actually start be the one that like you're continuing with and like having done 10 million in sales and trying to go and aim for like over 100 million in sales. Like very few people tend to do that with their first business from my experience. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I don't know, like, I don't like the word luck, but I mean, I've just been like continually failing forward, you know, like it's not been an easy journey, but uh, I'm like fairly committed. Same thing with the cycling career. Like I was a downhill mountain bike racer, but grew up in like a place where there was no mountains, like Toronto area. And I didn't let that stop me. So I started business. I was like, well, this is, if anything, easier than the uphill battle I had, you know, trying to be an athlete. So it's, I don't know. I just kind of like, there's probably many times that we could probably dig in of like where it didn't look like it was going to work out, but I just, you know, wasn't satisfied with that being the end. So I'll just like push on through and um, yeah, I don't know, like things are still going well. I mean, anything could happen, but uh, this, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a going concern now. Like there's a lot of us and you know, we're doing good sales. So um, yeah, pretty stoked on how things have gone. Today's podcast is sponsored by Privy. They are the number one most reviewed app on the Shopify app store and a necessity if you want to grow your e-commerce business. Now, before I started using Privy on all of my Shopify stores, I was seeing maybe a 1% conversion rate because I was spending so much time and money driving traffic to my store and not capturing any customer information. And after Privy, that all changed. Now my store converts at 3% plus, sometimes in the holidays, even as high as 5 or 6%. And it's because Privy helps me capture customer emails on my site and then allows me to go and actually use email flows to remind them to finish their purchase. So now I'm not just burning money on Facebook and Google ads. If you run an e-commerce store today, you literally cannot afford to not be using Privy. Head on over to privy.com slash next generation for your free trial today. And on that note, like I, I feel like when I was reading on Twitter, like as you guys were getting started, like you had a, a really good post, which I feel like I'll be honest, like this show does a really bad job of highlighting 
in this that most people listen to this and i've actually gotten dms from people recently being like hey like your show kind of makes me feel like shit because like all these people are like really young and like doing all this cool stuff i was like all right cool like mission accomplished that's that's what we're going for here <laughs> um but you had a tweet where i feel like most people don't see this element is that you said it took four years to really gain momentum to get where y'all are at now. And that's the stuff that nobody talks about because everyone's like, oh, we went from like, you know, zero to $500,000 in sales in 30 days. Like, follow me to learn more, whatever. Like, can you talk, like young people especially, I think have a very hard time understanding and grasping what 1200 plus days looks like of just grinding and trying to find product market fit and trying to find right suppliers. Like, what did it mean to like, take four years to really get the momentum of where you all are at today? Yeah. I mean, like if I look back and, you know, we're in our sixth year now and it feels like I just started yesterday, but then when I like reflect back to the early days, it feels like forever ago. So it's like, it's both a long time and not long time ago in my mind. I would say like, it's like anything, you know, any, any great success is like the 10 year overnight success or the five year overnight success. Right. And I think the main thing is, is I always say to young entrepreneurs, like, one of the most important things in the early days is just like time in the game. Like you really just got to put the work in every day. And in the first two years and definitely the first year of, of building your business, not a lot makes sense. You're like making decisions with limited data, insight and knowledge. It's not until you actually kind of do one to two years in the game that you can start to look back and apply a layer of hindsight as well as learned experience and like actually make sense of where you're going, especially if it's your first business, you know, in second business, you can start to apply some of the things you've learned and, and business is like, you know, like there's a lot of uniqueness to it, but there is a playbook. Once you figured it out and kind of have the experience similar to athletics or anything like a good athlete, you can go to sport to sport and kind of figure out some basic stuff. Um, so like, I think for young people that, you know, see like maybe follow us on Twitter now and see what we're doing. Like I didn't really start posting on Twitter about my business stuff till I was five years in. I'm only really starting to post now. So people are probably seeing like, oh, this athlete just whipped up a sock brand and did 10 million in sales. Like, no, nah, man, like it's been literally since 2016, head down for four years, co-founder buyouts, ups, downs, the pandemic, other things that have gone on like multiple times where it's like just been such an uphill battle and so, so difficult. And you know, I think I tweeted the other day, like being entrepreneurs, like equal parts, you know, extremely painful uh, as well as awesome because, you know, like on one hand, you're doing your own thing, working on your dream, but on the other end, the buck stops with you. And it's like a first time entrepreneur, it's just it weighs heavy on you. There's a lot of sleepless nights. There's a, a lot of working and then you start to grow a team and then everyone looks to you to have the answers. But like, we're just as flawed and, you know, like unexperienced, inexperienced as everyone else for the most part, you know, like mid young 20s kid trying to figure it out running a team and stuff it's like you know just trying our best so I think my main message and long-winded answer is around just like I think people need to just be more patient and and honestly just focus on the fundamentals like I always get so many messages now of like I've got an idea how would how should I start and I just say start you know like anything just actually just just actually do stuff like when I decided to start my business in 2016 I registered it that night and, and then the next day walked down to the local mall and got hats with the logo put on it, like at the store called Lids, walked my ass into school and then sold those hats to my classmates. I was like, I'm in business, you know, like I'm an entrepreneur. I like started that day. Right. And then just like slowly but surely ordered some lanyards from from China and then sold those and then started to figure out like, OK, I figure out how to source and import and sell. And let's put it. So just like I always say, focus on like one thing you can do that day 
like check it off the list and then focus on one more. And then eventually over 30, 60, 90 days, you've accomplished a ton. And then you can start to build on that momentum and make sense of where it should go. I'd say like, you're better off spending all your time on that in the first 90 days or even like six months than like writing a business plan or a pitch deck or any of that kind of stuff. Like just get started. Like it's so important. How did the actual idea come about? And like, how did you come up with socks? I feel like, right, like the typical, I don't know, I think even for Connor, like you start selling shirts or apparel, I think is always like a common first pathway that people start, you know, their entrepreneurship journey on. Um, but frequently it's, hey, you know, I'm starting with apparel. You find out it's really competitive. It's really difficult. And it's usually not the best kind of first business to go at because everyone's, you know, you can go buy socks anywhere. How did that come about? And how did you kind of realize, hey, this actually clicks, this works, and, you know, we have a business here? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell two sides of that story. The one, the real story where, like, I didn't have any insight. I was just doing what I thought was cool. And then be, like, in hindsight, all the kind of things that were, like, lucky by virtue of doing. So, like, the initial idea was that in cycling socks or culture, you wear, like, funky socks to like express yourself and so I like even when I was done cycling I would wear them every day to school or work and I was already known as like the sock guy and so I was like okay that's cool like I already have this kind of like part about me but these socks suck and so I, when I looked around the market to find like funky socks that were like all day performance that could go like through work play and like multi multi-sport that weren't just like a basketball sock or a cycling sock or a running sock it's like I was I was you know, not satisfied with the market had to offer. And when I looked at the old apparel market, it had shifted to athleisure wear, like Lululemon's, the Nikes, everything. But when I looked at the sock category, it was left behind. It was still just cotton dress socks and basketball. Like I said, it wasn't just like one sock to rule them all. Like I was like, where's the yoga pant of the foot, right? That was sort of in my mind. I was like, where is that? Something that someone could wear and looks good, like a coffee, a date, uh, anything, right? Like it's a functional functional item. and so then I also stepped back even further and worked from Canada. I was like, well, there's no Canadian sock brand. There's the American ones we can probably talk to, like Stance and Bombas and stuff. It's like, there's no Canadian brands. So I was like, okay, there's like an obvious white space here where there's an opportunity to combine technical innovation with expressive design on one of the best canvases for sport, which is socks. Um, and then there's an opportunity to build Canada's largest brand and then expand to North America. So that was kind of like the initial idea of like scratching my own itch of just wanting really like nice looking socks that were both highly technical. So I could go cycling, running to the gym and didn't have to change them up. They wouldn't stink. They wouldn't fall down, all those things. Now in hindsight, it's a really great kind of first product category, A, because there's not a lot of incentive for the big players to try and compete with you. Like obviously they sell socks and you mentioned you can go get socks anywhere. But when you start an apparel business, like the t-shirts, the pants, they're way higher margin, way better yield for these businesses. And so they don't have like a reverse incentive to double down on a category that makes them the least amount of money, right? And so like inevitably, it was an industry that was very bloated and slow moving with not a lot of incentive to go into. So there was a natural white space to go and innovate around business model product and and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of like one unique thing. and then beyond that, it's a unisex product. So starting out the gate, it, it lowered in inventory needs. So I didn't have to go gendered. I didn't have to go huge size curves. It's really just two sizes that we offer. Um, you can't try socks on in store anyways. So it's a natural D2C e-commerce play. Uh, they're light, easy to ship. You know, for the first couple of years, I couldn't really afford uh, with margins to like ship them, you know, a couple of days of tracking. So I would like literally letter mail them as if you're mailing like a letter, right? So it costs like two bucks to ship them nationwide. And it was a pretty shitty user experience because you got no tracking number and sometimes it take two weeks. But in the early days, people forgive you. Um, and so like there was all these kind of things that were working out and then they're fun. And like in a world where cancel culture and woke is kind of like 
top of mind, like socks are still something you can compliment on someone that's non, uh, that's not going to get you in trouble. Um, there's all these things looking back that were like created this like perfect storm of a business that could become a hundred million billion dollar brand. But I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. So that's where I say like, I had an initial, an initial idea where I was focusing on like scratching my own itch, but by the virtue of doing and learning and failing forward in hindsight, there was all these like beautiful pieces that were connecting on the back end, you know, that I could have never forecasted. It's so interesting hearing you tell the story because I think part of the selfish benefit of being able to run this podcast is you start hearing a lot of these lessons learned early on, like as you were just describing like why socks and like how you launched it and whatever, like literally three, it reminded me of three previous podcasts we've done. The first one being um, with Aaron Spivak, which like early, early days where he basically, he, he launched a company called Hush Blankets. They were a weighted blanket business and they just sold for like over $50 million but they were not necessarily the first to invent the weighted blanket. They were the first to like launch it in Canada. And I think that, you know, the first one here in the U S is like gravity blankets or something like that. Um, but like, they basically took this product, they knew it crushed in the U S they're like, we're going to be that, but for Canada. Right. So that's like, like you're launching in Canada specifically, like at least, at least to start. The second thing I get reminded of is uh, Chad who actually introduced us where he basically said like, I wanted to go and start dorsal bracelets because with bracelets, you're not really worried too much about sizes. Yeah. There's different wrist size, but like they're adjustable, they're lightweight, they're easy to ship. And so like, I'm not having to worry about like keeping small through triple XL in stock. I only have to keep this one bracelet in stock. Um, and then the last one is like also Sam Thompson was on and he basically said like what people get wrong so much about launching a new product is that they launch it and they're just like, I'm going to sell coffee. And he's like, no, no, no. You want to like pick the coffee and who you're selling it to. Right. So like coffee for moms, coffee for runners, coffee for dogs, you know, bullshit like that. Uh, and so I feel like what you did was you just said, Hey, I'm going to go and launch essentially a product that doesn't have a ton of different SKUs around it. Like you, you can launch the designs, right. Of course, but like you don't have to launch designs and then sizes across each that are crazy. You launch it for a very specific target market cyclist, which you already kind of like know and understand. And you launched it in a very specific like geographic market i.e. Canada. Uh, and so like now eventually you can move down to the US and expand there as well. But like by going super niche and targeting it there, you kind of create like this perfect storm. And I feel like what's cool about your story is like, it just resonates a lot from all the different stories we've heard on the show. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's what I was saying earlier, right? Like at a certain stage, like business is like applying certain formulas and just insights. And like, it's not a cookie cutter model, but it's like, there's a few different options. Like, yeah, go go an inch wide and a mile deep for sure to start, right? Because like, if you do too many things at once and you try to sell everything to everyone, you sell nothing to no one, right? So it's like, it's really important to focus. And the cool thing I, you can also be niche and large, like you go micro macro. Cause like when we focused on our sports, we started cycling since we knew and then expanded into running, training and adventure. So like four core categories, because although our socks are designed to go with you throughout the entire day, in the early days when we were trying to market it as like the perfect sock to go everywhere with you, people were like, well, what the hell are these socks actually for? So we focused on our niche four sports, but then realized that those four sports are also the cross training sports for every other sport. For example, like football players, basketball, everyone runs or cycles or goes to the gym as training for their, their main sport where the reverse is not true. Like a runner, a marathon runner doesn't play football for cross training, probably pretty dangerous and bad for the running career. So by actually focusing on a quite niche audience we were expanding and making ourselves relevant to a much larger audience because everyone could identify with running or with cycling or whatever so there's a, a superpower to actually being niche um, and then asking yourself like who also engages in this but staying keeping the message pretty clear in terms of your first purchase order 
I think you said you sold out right away, right? I think within the first, in the first week you posted, um, how did that work? Or did you just order like a bunch of socks and you're like, Hey, we're going to just see what happens. We're going to see if I can sell this. Was there any more to the game plan or was it kind of what you were saying before in terms of you just figured you'd fill forward, see what happens and then, and then go from there. Yeah, no, there was zero game plan. I ordered like as little as I could. So I wanted to have like, I had seven designs and they were awful. I taught myself how to use like illustrator and like designed them myself and sent them to the manufacturer and like somehow it worked out like the, the did you order them in china or where did, where did uh, you order them from? overseas in uh, in the philippines um and we're still with our factory today which is pretty sweet because i sold them on the fact that we were going to be this multi-million dollar brand but like at the time i was like but i only need 30 pairs you know uh per design and so i got 210 Every pairs time. of socks yeah yeah you gotta like sell the dream right and like people gotta bet on you it's like one of the skills you need to learn early on as entrepreneurs like you know um you know perception is reality right so like you always want to sell the dream, but not lie. Um, so yeah, I ordered 210 pairs of socks and like, I don't know if you ever held 210 pairs of socks, but I looked at them. I was like, well, these are going to last me like a year. Like I'm never going to sell this many. And I just like loaded up a Tupperware container and took them to school the next day and just started selling them. Um, and people liked them and bought them. And then like, I took them back the next day and they're like, oh, these are the best socks. They bought two, three more pairs. And then that weekend there was a, a biking race. And so I set up like a little table and like this really shitty Bristol board display that I thought at the time was like super dope. And it like blew over immediately in the wind. So I just had socks on a table and I sold out that day. And so we sold out of like 210 pairs. I had a 50% gross margin on them. Um, and so I was like profitable. I, I invested all the money and bought 700 more pairs. And then we sold those out over like Black Friday holiday season that year. And then just kept doing that. When, when did you actually make the transition of selling the socks online versus just hustling person to person and table to table that that second order so when we got the 700 pairs I, I whipped up a shopify store basically just so my mom and neighbors could buy them you know like as you do um and yeah and then like slowly like you know one sale a day one sale every other day and i didn't have any money to invest in marketing i didn't know how to do it so i just like started building a brand ambassador network and slowly but surely like it started to be a couple orders a day but like even in year two man like there was days where like we might not even have an order like that's how like up and down this business was and i remember like at that point we had like a local pickup for our deliveries every day and i would feel stressed if we didn't have an order because our, our pickup guy would be coming so i would like send orders to my friends not to look like a total loser I'm just like I, I can't have this guy picking up nothing right so i would just like write up you can't get judged by the mail guy you can't he would he would have some like cutting words oh that's all today he like he was just kind of saying it but to what me I was, like, it was, yeah to me it was like like a thousand cuts and i was bleeding out man like this like uh, if you ask some of my staff that were with me like and, and heard it like it was i don't think he was meaning to be like that but they can tell it was like crushing my soul that's rough yeah. okay i got two questions to one one to kind of put things in perspective and one to kind of give people some tactical advice when you're six years into the business right now, can you give like a rough breakdown on like roughly what top line sales looked like year by year getting to where y'all are at today? Cause I think, I think that's going to put things into perspective a lot too, where like, I don't know what you guys did that first year, but I think anyone who's kind of like in that first year, that second year, like that's listening to this right now can kind of see how things grow and how like compound interest kicks in. Um, and then the other question I have on that is you talk a lot and I hear not just from you, but from a lot of other people about like when you start a brand your goal is to like scale up a product business to not just jump into like Facebook ads right away um, and actually go and like focus on the marketing efforts and like the the content and the brand. 
but that in my opinion is very difficult to do when you're like well shit like it's tough to pivot when i've only gotten like one or two sales today and like i'm not getting enough feedback from what i really need um so can you explain what you mean by that and why you think if you think that's still like a good idea yeah um yeah so the first question um of just kind of like top line sales the first year we did a little over 300 grand so it was actually pretty good like I remember I saw, like, I sat with an accountant when I started just to make sure I wasn't going to get, like, go to jail. It wasn't, like, a tax thing or whatever. He's like, oh, you're going to have to remit in, in our country, like, GST, which are, are, like, our national tax, if you make over uh, 30 grand in four consecutive quarters. And I remember just, like, thinking and looking at him and be like, buddy, there's not a chance in hell I'm selling $30,000 worth of socks. Like, are you nuts? To me, that was, like, $300 million at that time, right? I was, like, I was in school debt. I was, like, a broke athlete for the most part. And so 30 grand was, like, life-changing money you know um and so uh surely enough though like that was the first lesson in not thinking big enough because we 10 x it that year and did like 350 grand and then the next year we doubled we did a little over 800 grand um and then we just kept doubling and so you know now current day we're like multi-eight figures a year so every year we just kept doubling um and to your point yeah like numbers are small until they're not and that's the part of being patient too right it's like if you're doubling it's like okay one to two two to four four to eight eight to 16 16 to 32 it starts to get really big right but like those first chunks of doubling are like really small and they don't feel like big steps but they but they're monument like they're extremely important because i always say like those steps are like the foundation and you can't build floors in a building with a really shaky foundation and that's why i'm really like a big believer in kind of growing slow in the start and actually focusing on who your actual customers are. So when you do want to turn on the actual like acquisition engine and start to like invest into Facebook or whatever, you're targeting the right people. You know, your messaging, you have feedback, like you can actually maximize your return on ad spend or your ROI and different marketing efforts. So yeah, top line revenue started at 300 K and then just started doubling until we got into the eight figures. Um, and yeah, now we're shooting for that hundred million dollar year, probably in the next two to three years is the goal. I'm being ambitious, but I think we can do it. Uh, we've proven that we can grow rapidly and we're also profitable, which is really cool too, and not common for our sort of industry. Um, and then the second question was like, yeah, I'm still a fan. Like it was a couple sales online, but I wasn't just selling online. I made sure we were like still popping up at events, partnering with, um, with different kind of businesses to kind of get the product out there. So only a small portion of that, like 350 K in the first year was like from our D to C business. It was a lot of just like going to local bike races and going to different expos. And I think that part of, if you're doing a product business, you can't discount actual, like actually just getting in front of the customer because they're going to tell you in real time, what doesn't work for them. Or they'll ask you questions. Like the question I always got was like, what makes your sock special? Like out of a thousand people that day, 900 asked that question. Like no, no lie. Like our so socks like, don't smell after you bike. Right. But like the, the real, the real tricky part is like, how do you answer what makes your sock special in like three to five seconds? Right. And that's like the trick of marketing online, especially like nowadays and our attention's even lower. It's like one to two second hook online. Right. So it really made me think of like, how do we actually answer that question through our website, product information pages, et cetera. And then also got like real time feedback of like, what the customers thought about the product because they'd be multi-day expos that they'd buy someone and see them the next day. Oh, I tried them or I raced in them and get that feedback for like years. And it really informed like how we storytell around the product as well as like one important lesson I learned is like we have a lot of designs and you would think that like more options equals better, right? Well, that's not the truth. People actually get decision fatigue and often like that will make them churn. 
And I would literally see this in real time. We'd have a big wall of socks and people would be so stoked. But then they're like, oh, I can't make a choice. I got to go. They get overwhelmed and they literally just bail, right? Even though like if they were able to find some clarity around their decision, they were so keen to buy, right? They were like in the funnel, they were converting and then they just like got overwhelmed. So that taught me that when we take this experience online, we need to have amazing filtering so people can give their inputs and take it down from a collection that's 200 pairs to 30 pairs, make it a lot more digestible. And so those are things that like, not impossible to figure out by just selling online, but like a lot harder and you wouldn't have those insights. So I'm still a believer that like, you should do a lot of boots on ground, kind of like guerrilla marketing stuff, like go sell the product, talk to your customers. And there's like the Airbnb story, right? Like where like they lived with their hosts in the early days and asked them like, what sucks? And they realized that photography was a big pain point to get listings. So they hired photographers for people. And so like, it's that like in the early days, you still have the ability to actually like, like interview all your customers or ask them what's going on. So I'm still a big believer that like you spend a significant amount of your early days, especially if it's your first business again, like literally just like immersing yourself in the experience and being part of the community and seeing like what problem am I solving and how do people talk about it? How does your revenue channels, how do those compare kind of now from originally boots on the ground, not door to door, but you know, just hustling at events, a little bit online. How does that compare to where you're at now? Is it mostly, you know, online ads and, you know, ambassador type of stuff or what are the, what does that revenue stream split kind of look like as of today? Yeah. Like over 95% of our sales are online right now. Like the brand's grown and in those early days, everything I talked about doesn't scale. Like that's a great way to run like a half a million million dollar, like local business. But like beyond that, you just, the cost to pop up like that everywhere is just too high for what you generate in returns. But in those early days, it's everything, like every dollar counts. And now, you know, saying like to go over to an expo in, in Vancouver and stay for a few days, it costs me like a thousand, two thousand bucks. And if I'm going to make $5,000 there, I basically break, break even. It's not worth it. I'd rather invest that money in other channels online that we have now. But back then it was worth everything for the experience and, and just like generating top line revenue and growth. Um, but now we have way easier ways to make like five grand. So it's like, there's, there's a push and pull and I don't discount still going to those things, but they have to be really big events now. Um, how do, how do the even, online sales split then, I guess, by, by channel? Is it mostly paid or organic or what does that look like? Because we spent so much time not doing paid, like we've built up a pretty robust and enormous retention audience and like retention engine in our ambassador network. We have 1100 ambassadors now. Um, and so it's quite expansive and they're all over North America and say we do like a, a, a million dollars a month, we'll spend about, uh, 150k on marketing, like maybe 200k. We're That's really, we're MR. Not, yeah, yeah. We'll be anywhere between like, like if we're investing heavy in growth, we'll be at a three X MER. If we're like kind of letting it ride a little bit, we'll be around five, six X, um, during black, during black Friday, we were like seven, eight X. Cause that's like a huge retention effort. Um, really, really high so, yeah. And so like, uh, we just focus on that and we'll shift a little more now. Um, we raised some money last fall. It was at the right time. We raised a few million dollars and we'll invest in like, uh, testing new channels. So we'll see like short term suppression, but at the same time with the amount of data we have, like we can invest pretty smart. And like, we know what our cocktail TV is. Like we just, we know how to kind of get this done. And I think like, drawing it the line right back to patience. It's like, I, I, forget, I'm, I forget who said it, but like a business dies twice as fast as they grow. 
right? So like there's a, there's, a, there's a benefit to kind of growing quite slow because you're building a really resilient and sustainable business when you grow slow. You see all these like startups that like reach billion dollar valuations in two, three years and they're out of business in like a month, right? Like Bolt, or not Bolt, uh, fast, fast, fast. fast, yeah. And like Bolt's probably on the way down now they're being sued by their biggest, you know, so like <laughs> that's anyway. So like these companies that like get all the hype cycles and grow really, really fast with VC money, um, they often are very, very, very shaky foundations. And uh, it just takes like one one blow to like a, a support beam and those businesses crumble, right? So, And I, I agree with what you're saying too, because I think that the toughest part about being a startup founder or like just a, com- a founder of any company really is you know exactly the strengths to pull now from a marketing efforts to go and get that three to four to five X MER, whatever it is that you're shooting for. The tough side is, is that, Every week you hear new information around, oh, you got to try this. This is a new channel that you're like, it's crushing for my brand. Or, oh, have you thought about these? Like these, these guys are crushing it for me too. And what's frustrating, I think after a couple of months is you realize the best way to grow is very often to just do the boring, same thing that you've been doing this entire time because you know it works. And every now and then it makes sense to go and invest in like a new channel and try a new opportunity. But very often, like more than not, if you can, like for you guys right now, my guess, and, and I could be completely wrong here, is the best two ways for you guys to grow right now is to double down on that ambassador program. And then also have some, you guys are running Facebook ads, I'm assuming, if you're doing that much in sales, like have some kind of just like creative engine or machine that's just constantly creating like 20 to 30 pieces of new content every single week. Um, like, am I, am I roughly right in saying that? Yeah, for sure. We, we focus heavily on all things kind of own. So like creating content for Facebook, YouTube, Instagram stories, ambassador content, growing the program. That's where the majority of our effort goes, you know, collaborating with other brands. We'd still do like partnerships with Red Bull and all these other brands for, uh, for like giving socks away at their events and stuff like that. So I agree. And I think this won't be news to you guys, but as a young entrepreneur, it's, it's so easy to have the fallacy that like, if I'm not doing it, that's the thing that unlocks the huge growth. It's just not true. Like, you know, SMS marketing is blowing up. Oh, I'm messing the text. And you expect like, oh, I'm going to do like a six figure day to day. It's just like, that's not how it works. If you do a tech, if you like go on an SMS program or like an SMS strategy and you, you double down it for a year, sure, it might start to work now. But it, like I said, it's time in the game. Like there's sometimes, and like, this is like the, the bad says, sometimes you'll do something that has like that immediate like result. And that almost tricks your brain into being like, oh, maybe there is some, on, on, some treasure like hidden, but generally like, the best way to grow is to do the boring stuff. And just that's the patience piece, right? Is like Facebook ads, for example, you get an ad that's got good ROAS, you can't just double the budget on it. You know what I mean? Because then like, it doesn't work like that. Like every time you want to take your ad spend from hundred grand to 200 grand, it's not just like spending twice as much. It's thinking like we have to expand the audience, we have to expand the creatives, the messaging, the landing pages, the relevancy, the frequency, all of these other factors. It's not just going one to two. It's actually evolving everything. And I think that's where people, you know, mistake scale for being just like, oh, I found something that works. I'm just going to like throw like gasoline on it. It's like, it's not that easy. You really have to take Facebook then for like one, like if we're talking in dollars, like hundred grand, you know, 105 grand, 110 grand. And you got to build it up and figure out what works. It's, it's not as easy as just going like hundred grand, 200 grand, 400 grand, unless you want to light money on fire and then you can, I mean, you can set your budgets to whatever you want, but um yeah, I agree. It's like, it's a low, it's a long, slow way to, to grow and it, it takes time, but eventually you can just like, if you do it really well over six years, you can sit back and the sales are just coming and it works and you got your email flows working for you over, you wake up to 
five, 10 grand in sales, even before you start your day. And it's like, okay, like it's, it's starting to kind of like roll along. Rob, aside from the eight figure e-commerce brand, which I'm very envious of, you have two things that I feel like every like entrepreneurial friend of mine in their twenties wants so badly. And that's one unlimited access to stocks at any given point. Like I can't tell you how many times I just like run. I have no idea where they go. I have zero clue. And then I'm okay, we'll set you up with some socks. Oh, okay, perfect. That. Amazing. Do you wear a new pair of socks every day? Is it like the unopened, you go in the, um, was it Justin Bieber route with the underwear? Dude, if, I, if, I, right. if, I ever think. A, if I ever owned a sock company, I would never wear socks twice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you'd think, but like then like anything in life, the novelty wears off. And like, I've got some socks that are like years old that I still oh, wear. Dude. It's like, no man, throw uh, them out new socks every day. Yeah. I, I, so like, we'll chat about this but later, but we're like, we're rebranding. So we have a bunch of new product and stuff. So um, for the first time, I like, I'm going to be like fully tr- like transferring over my collection to a whole new one. So I'm, nice. I'm pretty stoked on that. That's cool. And so, all right, so that was the first thing, unlimited socks. The second thing is like a 15 to 20,000 square foot industrial warehouse. Like this is the dream, whatever guy wants. And you have your own warehouse up in BC, right? Yeah, not that big. So we're moving into a new space right now. And it's, it's not that big. It's, it's multi-thousand square feet. But um, yeah, it's cool. Like I, I've never been a huge fan of 3PL. I think like it's, there's benefits and there's drawbacks, but we've always been able to kind of manage it our own because again, there was a lot of efficiencies in having a small product with low size ranges. If we're selling hoodies or something, we'd be pretty screwed like really early on. Mm-hmm. But we can still like in 2,000 square feet, for example, we could warehouse like well over 10 million dollars worth of product. Like so, it's not that crazy. Um, and when we like staff it ourselves, we're not only like creating jobs for university students, high school students. We've got our pick pack fee like under 80 cents or like something like that. So when you go 3PL, it's like three bucks, right? So it's like we're not even close to like having an inefficiency or a cost increase that warrants going to 3PL. My next phase from here is to build out like a 10 to 20,000 square foot facility here in Victoria. So right now we have our warehouse and office in the same space because like we can share rent and it just makes a lot of sense. And we have like 20 people and then a big warehouse in the back and we're building a beautiful office out right now. I've been kind of like tweeting about the the build out of it. and then from there, once we outgrow that warehouse, we'll make it all an office and then build a place here. Because I think I love the idea of like what Amazon did is like looking at a cost center, like something on the PL that costs the money and turn it into a business. And I think there's a, a real possibility of building like micro niche 3PLs, like in city centers for e-commerce brands. And so I want to build something that we would be able to have 50% capacity of, but then welcome all the other founders here and just leverage the rates that we get and like not hose them on all these fees. Like it's really just kind of like bring the community together cover our costs of labor and costs of shipping if we can eliminate our shipping line on the PL, we'll see a 20 percent lift in in gross margin right so it's like in an it, that would make us look more on on, on a profit and loss state and more like a software company than a product business if we could pull that off right which makes us extremely valuable um yes. so that's, that's kind of how i'm thinking now and uh yeah, I'm looking now, like, as we have a big enough team and kind of resources and the brand's kind of at a stage where, like, okay, we already run a warehouse. We already run a design team. We already run a marketing team. Can we split these into businesses and then offset the cost by welcoming others in? It's not an original idea, but it's a point where, like, you have to get to a certain scale to kind of start thinking this way. And I'm really excited about not just growing top line, but also, like, eliminating costs on the P&L just to, like, drop even more profit. Is that why you decided to raise money or was there a different reason to kind of take outside investment for the first time? Yeah, I'll be like super honest. Like 
it was a five-year journey where like I paid myself basically nothing. So, and over that period, um, like the business was profitable and we were growing like crazy. And I, you know, like I said about not even tweeting or popping my head up for four years, like I hadn't done any networking. And if in Victoria, there's a lot of like really established and, and impressive entrepreneurs. I started to like meet these people and tell them about my business and they were interested in, so I got like a little group together that were interested in investing and they've a bunch of people that have like been there, done that. They can have like a lot of contacts and leverage. And at the same time as an opportunity to do like a small, smallish secondary. So like sell some of my shares and realize a bit of a win after five years and kind of like, you know, just not have a hundred percent of my net worth in the most illiquid thing ever awesome. for the most part. Um, <laughs> and so we raised, you know, multi-millions dollars and a bunch of it went into the company just to kind of accelerate growth and buy more inventory it was just one of those right time, right place. You know, I, I owned a hundred percent of the company at the time I bought up my co-founder early on. And so I had like a lot of leverage basically to make a deal happen that capitalized the company. Cause like, did we have to raise? No. Was it like a strategic kind of like good opportunity? Yeah. And I think that's like the right time to raise money is like when you don't need to, because the leverage is you have it. The last thing I wanted to do is enter like we're, I'm kind of thankful because we're entering like our sales knock on wood aren't really, we're not seeing it in our numbers, but like you can see in the whole market that things are kind of slamming into a wall, right? Like tech valuations down 80%, D to C brands losing money hand over fist. Talking about the Manscaped um, PNL that just came out? Manscaped, Allbirds, sure. all of them. So crazy, 350 million down on, on Manscaped and they're trying, oh, it's stock-based comp. It's still comp, like, come on. Like, but like, so I love the idea that we, you know, we're well capitalized. We can invest. So like in these periods of, of downtime, it's like the classic kind of like Buffett move. It's like when people are scared, like get on your toes, time to like time to clean up and time to do these things. Prices become super fair. Um, and it's just time to kind of, to get, to uh, get on the offense. So we're playing to win. It was, it was just a good time to align with like a group of, of really people that I can lean on now for kind of the big, big thinking, big picture stuff that can help with whether it's acquisitions or whipping up a warehouse or, um, all these bigger moves that like I have no experience in right now and that's where the benefit comes from and then as entrepreneurs like when your business does start to make it you got it like it's the time to like take some money too off the table like I'm why are you doing it otherwise right it's like right. um, you start a business to make money and in those early days for five years I invested every dollar back into hiring people and we built the team to 15 it was like the, the value that then what I saw was like I'm not going to take dollars out on salary it's like I'm building the equity to be valuable and so i was eventually able to sell that it was like great like that's a, a bit of security and i can just like I also for this next five-year journey on the path of like 100 million i don't want to think about money i don't want to take more salary than i need to i don't want to pay out dividends i want to go like all in so it's like i need enough money to kind of like have some security and just not worry and then just like go hard for five years you know you brought up two points there and i'm going to let you choose which which direction you want to kind of go in but you talked about uh, having some investors in Victoria. I know you mentioned that you had a whole conversation with Andrew Wilkinson a, a couple of years back, I want to say, um, that kind of changed your mindset and where you want to take the business. Uh, the other thing you talked about was buying out your co-founder. I think it costs like $150,000. Um, up to you, your call, which direction you want to take that, but I'm curious to hear the stories behind both of those. I could tell both because they're both good stories. And they're both like pivotal moments. Like the first one was I started the business like in school and like I can't stress enough how it wasn't going to like be what it is today. It was like, I was really doing it to avoid getting like a real job. Like I, I was hoping it would work out, but I still had three more years of school. Like I was just kind of doing it to, to fill time and honestly fill that void that was missing from when I was like racing, you know, waking up with that fire in your belly and like something to work on that was like way bigger than yourself. I was missing that 
So I asked my buddy in college, I was like, want to do it with me? Like, it'll be more fun if we can just like, you know, bro down and just like, do, like do this, you know, like it's it, entrepreneurship's like really hard too. It's lonely. And so it's like way better when you can do it with someone, but that's not a good reason to start a business with somebody It's because it'd be fun. Or like, you think like they're a cool person, like business relationships really need to be based on like skill sets and values and like alignment. And of course you want to like the person, but above all else, like they have to be entrepreneurial. They have to have like the same work ethic of you as you. And so, you know, like, like anything, any relationship, six months is totally fine. About a year, you start to kind of see things. And, and what really ended up happening is, you know, at the core, he just wasn't an entrepreneur. And like, I think he would admit that too. It's, it's, it, that's fine. Not everyone is. And so there was a misalignment on like how hard we would have to work and how many and how much effort we'd have to put into keeping up with the learning curve of the business. Like the amount of books and, and just the amount of shit I just read like all the time because I had no idea what I was doing. I was just watching, I was obsessed. I was like, and so at a year, it basically became impossible for us to have like a really high level discussion. Like he had basically defaulted to just like packing the orders and answering custom service emails and stuff. And like, I really needed an operational partner that would be like, you know, in the early days, I'm CEO, but are you really? Like I needed like my COO basically, you know, in our business, I needed like real help there. And, um, and then it just got to the point where like the friction was so heavy and like he was so like overwhelmed that he quit the business and we had no shareholder agreement or anything because I didn't know like anything when we started the business and it was this whole messy thing, but ultimately I had to come up with like 150K of like personal debt to buy him out. And, you know, it was the right move to make, but like my lesson there was like shareholder agreements all the way, obviously, like there need these things, like just like any relationship, there needs to be a way that these things dissolve if they don't go right, right? And how do you like, because you want to remove the, the emotion and the ego and all of that. And that's what these, these documents do well. Um, so that was just super hard. The lesson there was like, start a business with someone that like, obviously has the same goals and alignment as you, but this is not an uncommon story, unfortunately. First time entrepreneurs like get themselves in these trouble all the time, because like generally you're not thinking about the future and like the, the odds of success, although you want it to be, successful are so so low right so you're not really worried about like i'm gonna have to buy you out in two years you're like yeah right like the odds that we get there are so low right but i always say now it's like a lot of people ask themselves when starting a business like what could go wrong but i think it's equally as important to ask yourself what happens if this goes right and so that by asking yourself that question you start thinking with the right legal structure do we have the right tax set up like all of those things because like the last thing you want to do like it's, it's really bad luck to kind of not be prepared to like weather down times, but imagine something amazing happens and you don't have the ability to capture the opportunity. That would be like almost more devastating than the business failing. Cause like, you'd be like, oh, we could have been this a hundred million dollar brand, but I just like had my hands in my pocket. Right. It's like, that would be the worst. That would kill me. I'd rather fail. Um, so that was the first story. And then like I bought him out and that was kind of like where I was like a lot of skin in the game, right? Like 150 grand in, like now complete control. Uh, that's just where they landed on, like where we landed in terms of, uh, it was really that they put a price per share and just like, um, this is what uh, what I think is fair. And, and that 150 includes the legal fees. So I think the actual buyout was like 130 grand. And like, there's just, you know, lawyers. <laughs> They're the ones really went throughout this whole process, right? Uh, or anything like uh, man the amount of legal fees i've paid is, is nuts um but 
so yeah, that's kind of how it, how we came up and look, it was, the number was like this, right? Finger to the wind. Like, how do you really value a company that was like really made like, like eight grand in profit or something like that. Right. Um, but at that point you're valuing time, you're valuing goodwill, you're valuing inventory on hand, all these other things. So it was fair. Cause what I ultimately asked myself was like, knowing what I know now, if I was presented this business and the idea and vision of like where I know it can go, would I pay 150 grand for it? And that was a shitty question to answer. The answer was yes. And it was shitty because like I built the business. So why am I buying it? But ultimately the answer was yes. So like it was a no brainer for me. I would have paid more. So um, good thing we didn't. <laughs> um, right. And so like, yeah, that kind of like skin in the game. I'm like, I got to build a team now. Like I'm really going to go for this. So like up until that point of buying about, we had made about a million in revenue. We made like 9 million the next two years. So it was like the right move. Like I finally was able to build the team to help me and like execute on the things I knew needed to be done. And then like at that four year point where we're like approaching the 10 million and like, that's when I kind of like felt like I had enough of a story and kind of like credibility and experience to start reaching out to people like Andrew that I didn't even know lived in town. Like that's how much I didn't know about like entrepreneur, like other entrepreneurs. I was like so focused on just like what I was doing. I didn't even know people like Andrew Wilkinson lived in Victoria. I saw a tweet where he was like talking about COVID in Victoria. I was like, the hell? I've been following this guy for like two years. I didn't even know he lived here. I thought he was part of the whole Silicon Valley kind of like crew, right? Because like in his crew and they're all over kind of Cali and stuff like that, not in Victoria. And so I was like, this is nuts. So DM'd him and he was generous enough to meet me. And then we became friends and he introduced me to everyone else in town. And like, I got immersed and kind of welcomed into the entrepreneur community here, which was just like, so amazing because like I felt alone for so long and like because I was an athlete first and I had my athlete community here and then I was kind of lost for four years you know and then like found my people again in this new world and it's just been you know exceptionally rewarding and so yeah Andrew led our, our recent financing round uh, that we did in the in the fall last year and there's some other amazing people in the round like Shane Parrish is in it and just so many other cool people. And what was his advice? Because I think specifically the tweet that I'm referencing that I saw before that I thought was really cool is like, I think maybe I'm going to paraphrase this wrong, but like you went up to him and you're like, hey, I want to like sell $5 million in stocks this year. And he basically turns back to you and he's like, why not 20 million? And you're like, uh, that's, that's a good point. I don't know. Like, so was it was, was yeah. a big piece of advice? Like you're just not thinking about this big enough or? It, yeah, it wasn't even advice. It was just like, so we were having coffee and I'm just telling him my story. And in my mind, I'm, I'm getting to the big point where like, I'm going to do 5 million. Like this to me, I'm like, this is like, this is going to make them stoked. Right. <laughs> and so I get to the point, I'm like, yeah, and we'll do like 5 million this year. It's a couple of years ago now, or like a little over a year ago. And, um, and, uh, and he kind of just like looks at me, I'm expecting like, oh, like good job. Right. And looks at me like kind of like dead in the face. And he's like, why not 20 million? Right. And, and that's how he is too. He's like, he's like, always going to ask you like the literal question of like, you know, like, and kind of leave a little bit of the emotion out sometimes of like business stuff, right? Like, why not 20 million? But I appreciated the question because it was like, why not? You know? And like, I'm generally like, you could probably see on this podcast, I can answer questions pretty quick. I'm like fast on my feet. Like I, I know what I'm talking about, but that one like truly stumped me. And I was just like, I don't know. I, I didn't have an answer. And I started reflecting on it that night. And what I ultimately came to the realization was like, I just wasn't thinking big enough. I built the forecast that year, four or $5 million. Like that's what I thought that was going to double the year before. And that was the only reason I was like, because I set that as the goal, I was like, well, what if I made the goal 10 million? So like I re I re forecasted like that week and yeah, we crushed 5 million. Like we, we far surpassed it. Right. Like, um, 
And so that was like the first lesson in just like thinking big. And that's what I've really learned from him and others is just that like, everyone is still figuring it out. The real difference between like the people that are, are out there making 10, hundred million is that they're just operating on another level in terms of how they're thinking. Um, they're thinking extremely large, like they're delegating, they're building teams, they're simplifying things and they're not afraid to just try things and then they ask them if they don't work, right? So yeah, it's forced me to think a lot bigger and it's just been like this huge, uh, you know, just growth exercise over the past year that's just made me think like, like hiring a GM for our custom labs business, for example, like, like sub-branding our private label side of our business, hiring a GM and a team there to actually take it and scale it to me is like before having those conversations, like that was scary. Like, why would I do that? I can do it, you know, like, but I hired the GM on their advice and like went all in on what they told me to do. And that guy's tripled the business over six months. Right. So it's like, these are the things. Yeah. I, f- I find that like the way you're describing the story, it almost reminds me of like the whole uh, movie, the social network. It's like the Sean Parker, Justin Timberlake character right. walking out, be like, drop the, the whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not 20 million? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like on, on that note, this is probably the last question that I at least have that I wanted to kind of get through today, but very few people make it to the hundred million dollar mark in terms of, you know, where their business is. Um, more people make it to 10 million and more to 1 million and whatnot. And so like, but like it, it kind of digresses and it's, it's different at each scale and, and you're going to be pretty much realizing that firsthand. So I would love to maybe understand from your standpoint, like those all seem like three different phases going from zero to 1 million, 1 million to 10 million, 10 million to hundred million. And how do you think about the business differently at each of those scales and like what you actually have to go and do to get to each of those scales? Yeah, I would say like the zero to 1 million that you can do it with like a one or two person team. You can do it super like boots on ground. You can do it without any systems, business plans, help investment and stuff like, you know, like gun to head, I could build a million dollar business in any industry. I'm pretty confident like within a year. I'll just figure it out. Like now knowing what I know, right? And that's not like, a, like maybe a cognitive thing to say, but like, I think that's just to the point where like, you can get it done. You can like muscle your way to a million dollars and like, and, and figure it out. That like one to five, I'd, I'd put a step in between like one to 10. Cause I think one to five, you can still do it with a small team. And you can like, in a, I'm gonna just talk about a product business. Cause like, that's what I know. One to five million, you can still do it with a small team and with relatively low efficiency and like processes and stuff like that. What I found from like five to 10, is things start to break you know this is where you need like full-time customer service you need like a warehouse manager like it's just it's hectic right you're now like accepting po's that are multi hundred thousand dollars coming in going out inventory controls finance accounting all that stuff like it gets kind of real at five million and above and where like small mistakes are hundreds of thousands of dollars not tens like not tens and hundreds right um 10 million and above i imagine is going to be so like we're our in that 10 million range right now. So I, I can't speak too much to how it's going to feel. What I imagine that leap is going to be though, is just like hyper focus on, on just like actual scale around the different areas of the business. Like I talked about, like efficiencies on the cost lines, like building out warehousing, building out my teams. It's going to be like the function of like becoming a real large company, like hiring execs, hiring a lot more people, um, scaling just everything we do and, it, and it's it's kind of that fun phase of like we've got the formula it's really now about like putting the pieces in place and making the right hires i say that like i have three things i'm working on the third one's a little like it's a little funny and goofy but i think it, it makes sense the first one is really just like a really really clear and well descriptive or real well um kind of like what's the word i'm saying like 
clearly clearly like uh fuck I'm, I'm blanking on the word i'm looking for anyways the vision is what i'm saying like i'm saying the vision and like clearly explaining that to the team and like having them bought into the vision where are we going to be in 10 years and five years the mission along with that and the values and like how do i really um make sure that's crystal clear for people and that that is like makes its way throughout the organization because again as people grow as the team grows it's hard for that information to kind of go all the way down where it's like five person team it's they're right in front of you um so that's the first thing really clear vision make sure that it's like really felt and understood throughout the entire organization number two would be like continually investing in our people brand and product so always expanding our how much inventory we have like make sure the products improve product development make sure our brand is super strong the foundation solidified content all that stuff marketing and then our people like people are what make a business like grow um so like the right people and the best people and the third thing is like just do what i can to develop an audience like for lack of a better term try to get famous you know try to like crack twitter crack linkedin do this kind of thing because like as we know like business went d to c and now marketing needs to go d to c it needs to go like direct to consumer with like you need an audience if you look at elon as an example um he's built you know tesla with like his audience right right like super fans and stuff i'm not saying i'm trying to be elon i'm just saying that there's a superpower in doing things that are not normal in that sense and that i think audience is super important you look at like some of the biggest apparel and like cpg brands are youtube creators starting businesses right and so it's maverick, because they have maverick the brand from logan paul whatever like that yeah yeah like his energy drink or his, his hydration drink company or i think like mr beast burger or something right like these guys can just whip up these businesses he has a chocolate bar company anyways they like they like they they decimate the founders that try their like 10 years to build these businesses these guys have 100 million subs on youtube but they start a candy bar company and they're like rivaling hershey you know what i mean it's yeah. it's, it's like crazy yeah. um so I think from people. Super, yeah and so i think there's a like i think when i just think of like the highest impact things i can spend my time on i think developing an audience for our brand and, and somewhat myself um is super important and then making the like the, the requisite investments as well this will be coming out after May 1st. And so if people do want to go and check out some of the socks uh, and, and all the lines that you guys have, where can they go and find y'all? Right. So yeah, the thing we haven't touched on is like we're changing our name as of May 1st. Um, so like in the past five years, we've been operating on the brand name in Jure, but we're changing the name to Outway. Um, you know, it's as the result of external circumstances I can't talk too much about. Uh, people can probably draw their own conclusions, but um Ultimately, we were given the choice to figure out what path we wanted to take. And we decided that like the path we want to move with is an evolution of the brand under the new name Outway. We feel that like the, the brand has grown a lot over the past five years and that this new name could really champion our mission. Like ultimately our mission going through this period, I I talked to like thousands of our ambassadors and customers and teams and partners. And what I learned, I asked them, like, what does our brand mean to you? Like I know what it meant to me when I started, but like a lot's happened in five years. And what I kept hearing was like, I put my socks on to X, whether X was like, I had an important ride that day or an important presentation or an important meeting. X was always attached to a personal best or some sort of achievement or some type of improvement. And so I like distilled our, our mission down. I think any mission or like anything that you can distill down to like five words or less is like, then you've, you've nailed it. So like our mission is to inspire everyone's personal best. That's what we want to do with our product and brand. And then on that when we were asking ourselves like through this rebrand process how do we champion that outweigh was this like name that to me in pursuit of your personal best you have to be willing to put yourself out there and carve your own way so it's the amalgamation of those two things and that pathway to just improving every day 
And we want to be a brand in the athletic space that detaches performance from winning and attaches performance to self-improvement and just being better every day and working on being like the best you. And maybe that's a little cliche, but like focus on what makes you happy, like what's exciting to you and like, just like find that way um, out of the darkness, like I did when I started the brand. And so we're super stoked on the new name. So people can find us at outway.com. Six letter domain wasn't cheap. Um, we're, yeah, it's, it's, it's can you awesome. Drop, can you now. drop the price tag or, or you want to keep it off air? Yeah, why not? We paid 25,000 US for it. So it's not, not, it's expensive, but like, again, digital real estate, like the six letter, easy to spell, easy to remember English word domain. Like I'm pretty confident that if I needed to sell that thing because the business imploded for some reason, I could make more on selling that name. Um, so again, that's how you like, you want to think of things as an entrepreneur too, is like these things are not costs. If you can make the, the business case of why it's more of an investment or an asset. I, I do believe that like a really strong domain is one of the most important assets you can have for an e-com brand, obviously, uh, and like a .com too. So, uh, and then online will be at Outway Socks. I'm working on acquiring at Outway across all platforms, but it's challenging. There's, it's not as easy as buying domains. So, um, and then if people want to like learn more, like you said, I, I talk pretty openly and, and honest online. I do that on Twitter and LinkedIn mostly. And it's just at Rob Fraser, two Bs, R-O-B-B, Fraser. And uh, yeah, people can check it out and see more of our story. We've released a little uh, YouTube series too, three videos that kind of walk through. They're the good. first one being like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. The first one being like our foundation. The second one being like we had a videographer on staff the day I got like the notice that says we're going to need to rebrand. And so we caught the raw moment and explain that. And then the third video drops by the time this is out, which will like explain what I've kind of just explained about the rebrand. So people can watch that process. We also documented uh, last black Friday. It's like seven episode series, which is That's actually it. pretty interesting. Cause like uh, uh, it was super hectic, but uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you guys having me on. This has been, been super fun. I, I know you've been on a podcast tour. You got to rate us three podcasts in one being the best, three being the worst. Where are we at? Man, my favorite podcast is always the one I'm on right now. So it's you guys. You, know. <laughs> well, I, you heard it here first. Number one, baby. You guys do a good job. I love what you guys do. So yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to be on and uh, it's fun connecting with you guys. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes.